Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I am joined today, as always, by Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Well, we've got to the end of January and moves into early February as we're recording this. Uh, We said that January was a bit of a volatile, choppy one for the markets. There was a bit of a rally towards the end of the month. But uh, what's uh, what's been the news this week as far as the, the market movements are concerned? Well, it's been a better week for the investment companies sector. So in fact, the first three days of the week, the sector ended up in positive territory. And certainly after the first four, it was up 2.2%. And actually, that represented a little bit of an outperformance against the wider UK market. So the FTSE all share up about 1% over the first four days. However, before we get too excited, you know, to your point, it has been a tough start to 2022 for the investment company sector. It's down about 8% or so. And that compares with a small gain of about 0.4% for the wider UK market. And we have seen discounts widen out, certainly from the start of the year. And over the last week, we've seen them move in a range between about 4 and 5% on average, though clearly a huge dispersion in terms of what investment companies are trading on. But as always, an interesting week for the markets. A lot of talk about central banks and their response to inflationary pressure. And obviously in the UK, the Bank of England raised its base interest rate by 25 basis points to 0.5%. And apparently in the UK, at least, we're going to see an inflation peak of 7.25% in April, uh, and in fact, average about 6% throughout the year. Obviously, all eyes on the Federal Reserve and what they might do in March. A lot of speculation, we might see a 50 basis point rise from them. But it's interesting, aside from all the inflation and central bank chat, uh, we've seen some very interesting results, which really have moved markets this week, particularly from the large American tech companies. So on the positive side, um, Google produced quarterly earnings, which were up significantly. Likewise, Amazon saw its profits surge in the final quarter of 2021. However, on the flip side, we've seen Meta or or Facebook's holding company. um, That's been hit very hard by the fall in advertising revenue. In fact, we saw a record daily loss, um, the biggest sell-off in Wall Street history, when the value of Meta or Facebook was down $230 billion on one day alone. So that's got to hurt. So it's all about the earnings for those big names. And it just reminds us that despite the fact that the markets are quite obsessed with macro conditions in inflation, that earnings ultimately do matter. Indeed. And of course, there's one other thing lurking in the background, which is this developing situation in Ukraine with the Russians, which is not a kind of thing that tends to move markets in the short term, but it does increase anxiety around the place. And that's something we've got to see how that ends or whether it ends well or badly or what kind of standoff there is, how long that continues. But you're right, it's been a very interesting week in terms of earnings. And so in terms of the investment trust sector, as we've said before, obviously, when you've got things like Scottish mortgage, which is such a large part of the investment trust or close end investments index, that's going to have an impact on the on the way that the aggregate figures change. And obviously, the tech stocks and uh, some of the smaller company investment trusts have been particularly badly hit over the first few weeks of this year. That would be right, would it not? Yeah, that's spot on. So, you know, the investment company sector, because of its exposure to names such as Scottish Mortgage, Investment Trust, and a number of the more growth-orientated mandates, have been hit hard this year. Uh, and we've talked about a number of those names over, over recent weeks. So it has been a tough start for those names. 
Okay, well, that's the way the markets go. And as we've said before, the old adage, you know, so goes January, so goes the year. We'll have to hope that isn't quite how it works out this year. Uh, there's not a lot of truth in that old adage, but it's a, it's a good one to wheel out from time to time. Let's move on and talk about some key corporate activity this week. There's not a lot of news here. There's one of particular interest to us, but uh, let's kick off, first of all, with the rather strange developments at Aquila Energy Efficiency Trust, ticker AEET. Yeah, this was a, an odd development, actually. So the announcement was this week or came from Aquila Energy Efficiency Trust this week that Laura Sandys and Lisa Arnold had resigned as non-executive directors uh, due to a difference of opinion regarding the speed of deployment. Uh, now, just to remind people, this fund came to the market only in June last year when it raised £100 million. Uh, that was somewhat short of its target of £150 million. And obviously, it's in its kind of rollout phase. However, given slower deployment than originally anticipated, the board is now undertaking a review of the investment strategy, and that includes a shareholder consultation. So they have given some details of some of the investments they have actually made since that IPO in June, uh, and that includes a 17 million euro commitment to energy efficiency projects in uh, 16 residential buildings in Italy. Uh, and they've also made a number of smaller uh, investments or commitments as well. Though clearly, there's a lot of capital still to be deployed. But yes, a very interesting development. I mean, to have two of your four non-executive directors resign after slow deployment does suggest that something is a little amiss. I mean, we have seen a number of investment companies over the years come to the market and then fail to hit their targets in terms of deploying their capital. I mean, when this one came to the market, there was talk of an advanced pipeline. I think that was valued at about 210 million euros at that stage, uh, of which about 37 was in a solar type assets. But this development has hit its share price. It's down 13% in share price terms year to date, and it hasn't paid a, a dividend. So it'll be interesting to see how this one goes. Yes, indeed. It will be interesting to see that. I mean, it's, I can't think of a precedent for this. Can you think of a precedent for this, at least in recent memory, for this particular kind of a denouement where, where half the board resigns because the money hasn't been committed you know, in sufficient quantities? As you say, maybe no, there's much more to it than first appears. Yeah, no, I can't think of an example like this. As I mentioned, you know, we have seen investment companies launch in the past and, you know, after, I don't know, 18 months, two years, they still haven't got fully invested for whatever reason. So that is not unique. However, to have within a 12-month period, less than that, nine months or so, to half the board resigning over the rate of deployment does raise questions. And it's worth noting Aquila, which is a German company, Aquila Capital, to give it its full name, would appear to be a serious organization. It's got 13 billion of euros assets under management. It has 600 plus employees. It focuses on clean energy and sustainable infrastructure. So it does have, at least it would appear, pedigree in this area. Alex Betts is the lead manager. And, you know, they were very clear they're going to focus on small, medium sized energy efficiency projects in public and private sector, uh, very much a focus on Europe. But with a target net shareholder return of 75 to 9.5% per annum and a target dividend growing to 5% by the 2023 financial year, they've got a lot of work to do. And it'll be interesting to see the result of that shareholder consultation. There's some quite big stakes in this one. So Investec Wealth, I think, own uh, 25% of the shareholder capital. Schroeder's on their private client side will own about 12% and Aquila themselves own about 13%. So it's a bit of a lumpy shareholder base as well. So you imagine there'll be quite a lot of uh, communication between the shareholders and the company and uh, trying to uh, work out what's happening and uh, what that might mean. But the market seems to, given its initial verdict anyway, doesn't really like this very much, does it? 
no, it's hard to portray this as a positive development, to be honest. Okay, well, that's an interesting one. We're going to move on now and talk about a company and investment trust that's particularly dear to our heart, and that is uh, Hypnosis, the music royalty company, which has entertained us royally over the last couple of years or so. But it's in the news again. It always seems to be in the news. This time, it's not any announcement from the company. There's no uh, announcement of any new catalogues being signed up. But there is quite a lot of a lot of publicity, a lot of headlines about one of its artists, and that is Neil Young, the famous singer-songwriter who's produced some uh, some landmark, iconic uh, albums that uh, I remember certainly listening to when I was a bit younger than I am today. He's now 70, I think, in that sort of period. But he has basically said that he's going to take his music off Spotify, the streaming service. Uh, that's an interesting development. Is that good news or bad news? Perhaps you could fill us in on the background, first of all, Simon, and then we can talk about what the impact might be. Yeah, so it's a really interesting development, this one. Basically, as you correctly said, Neil Young, a very famous American singer-songwriter, came out publicly and made it clear he was unhappy to have his music available on the Spotify platform alongside Joe Rogan, who apparently is a very popular and famous podcaster, probably gets a few more listens than we do on a, on a weekly basis. And certainly, I understand that there's a big contract in place between him and Spotify uh, for many, many tens of millions of dollars. Joe Rogan, an American character who's quite controversial, and he's had quite a few things to say about vaccines and COVID and all the rest. Neil Young has made it clear, and I think this is a quote, actually, they can have Rogan or Young, not both. And on that basis, he wanted to his music to, to come off the platform. That happened, and that was in conjunction with Warner Music, who apparently own the master rights or the master recording rights for Neil Young's music. So this is the thing. So what does this mean exactly? Well, it's obviously hit Spotify's share price, and there have been a number of artists who have taken a similar stance to Neil Young. But in terms of hypnosis, they own 50% of Neil Young's publishing rights. Now, this is not to be confused with the master rights. They're a different thing. And, and certainly, my understanding, it's the master rights that really have the say on this. So in other words, it was the rec- in the record company's gift to withdraw that music from the platform. But the question is, would that hit Hypnosis's revenue stream, given that there may be a loss of earnings on this? And if so, what would the impact likely to be? And this is where we start running into some difficulties. And, and as an analyst trying to cover this company, this is where the frustrations kick in. Because as we've discussed before, hypnosis songs have not historically provided a huge amount of disclosure about their underlying portfolio. They're very happy to tell you that they've signed Neil Young and they own 50% of his publishing rights and, and you know what a great artist he is and all the rest of it. But what they don't tell you is how much they've paid for that. And they don't necessarily tell you the earnings that that portfolio, uh, that catalogue has generated over the years. So when something like this blows up, it becomes quite difficult to actually ascertain or estimate the actual impact on their revenue. Um, there's been a bit of media speculation. Um, it's been mentioned in a few reputable sources that th- this was a $150 million deal. So in other words, quite a significant deal. I suspect hypnosis might question that. And also as to this point that if he's not on Spotify, what is the impact on his earnings stream? Well, Spotify is clearly a large player in this space, but other platforms are available. And I'm sure the people at Hypnosis would point to the the fact that Neil Young's profile is now the highest that it's been for years because he's getting all this publicity. So I suspect he is picking up a few listeners on other platforms. So quite a difficult one. What we, what we can say is that Hypnosis Songs does appear to have been hit by this. I think it was softening a little bit ahead of this news, but I've got it down about 7% year to date. But it just, as I said, I think the kind of key takeaways of this is just the frustration in terms of 
what the impact would be given that lack of disclosure. And really, when you look at these kind of more specialist asset classes, do investors, do people really know what they're buying? Do they really understand the differences between master rights and publishing rights? Because invariably, these stories, these asset classes always uh, are more complicated than they might first appear. Yeah, well, there are, it does raise a lot of interesting issues, as you said. And it's not the first time that people, as you say, have had some issues with the amount of disclosure that hypnosis makes. Just out of interest, I mean, how has the other music royalty trust performed relative to hypnosis? In other words, is this seen very much as a specific issue for hypnosis or is it uh, something that might have wider implications if you know artists start taking big stances like this, which is perfectly within their rights, obviously, having taken a big chunk of money out of them to sell those rights? No, that's a really good question. And to answer that, if you look over the last month, I've got Hypnosis Songs Fund share price down about 7%, whereas Roundhill has been flat. In other words, this is seen at the moment, at least, as very much a hypnosis issue. I think, though, that people are now looking at both portfolios and trying to ascertain the level or the balance between master rights and publishing rights. Master rights are more difficult to acquire, and obviously it sounds as if they have more kind of power. So in, in theory, at least, they should be more valuable, and I think they've got different economic benefits. So I think people are, again, are slightly more discerning. But at the moment, at least, Roundhill does not appear to have been impacted by this. Yes, I guess the other thing is, I mean, one of the things that um, Mark Mercuriadis, the founder of Hypnosis, has always said, is, you know, part of his objective is to make more money, and but also to, to help artists who they feel aren't paid enough, basically, by uh, things like Spotify and so on. I'm tempted to say he's a bit of a, perhaps I'm trying to say, a bit of an aging rocker himself. And he has always said very good things about Neil Young. And, uh, you know, he listened to his first Neil Young record when he was seven. And, uh, you know, his music has been my friend and Constance ever since. You kind of think, well, maybe there's, uh, you know, he's fallen a bit in love with his uh, particular catalogue artist this time. Anyway, we'll have to, interesting to see. I mean, it does raise some important questions. I guess if you're a shell in, in the hypnosis, you perhaps will be on the lookout to see how this one plays out. So we'll move on and let's talk about some fundraising. There has been a little bit of fundraising, not perhaps on the scale that we've got used to towards the end of last year, but uh, let's kick off with Aberdeen European Logistics Income, ticker ASLI. They've raised some money, I think, this week. That's right. So they announced that they'd raised £38 million. That's nearly about €46 million. And that was via a placing under a share issuance programme and a retail offer. So about 34.5 million new shares have been issued, in fact, at a price of 110p per share. And that represents about a 4% premium to their NAV at the end of September. So those new shares began trading on Friday. The fund made it clear they hadn't actually specified a fundraising target ahead of this issue, but they had stated they were in exclusivity on four assets with an aggregate value of about 49 million euros, uh, in addition to which they've got a near-term funding requirements of about 142 million euros. So it's difficult to judge whether that was a success or not. Would that be fair if you don't have that information available? Well, given they've got that funding requirement and so on, would you, would you expect them to try and come back and get a bit more? It's entirely possible. I mean, they're trading on a little bit of a discount at the moment on my screen, about 6% or so. And it's worth noting when they last raised capital in the marketplace back in October last year, they raised 125 million, uh, and that was through an oversubscribed placing. Let's talk next about Polar Capital Global Financials, ticker PCFT, specialist investment trust that uh, nearly went out of business a couple of years ago, but has bounced back and is now much in demand. So they also raised a bit of money, I think, as they said they were trying to do. Yeah, that's right. So they announced they'd raised gross proceeds of uh, just over £29 million. 
That was the issue of just short of 17 million new ordinary shares, uh, and that was done at a 1.5% premium to their most recent NAV. And those shares began trading on Thursday. But the, the fund still has powers. In fact, it's just renewed its authority to issue uh, additional shares. And uh, you know, I think they made the point that since the end of November in 2020, they must have raised over £300 million now. And given they've got a market cap of about £561 million, um, you know, it really has moved this fund on substantially in the last few years. Yes. I mean, obviously, they may invest mainly in banks and uh, fintech and other financial companies. And that's been very much in demand, particularly in this env- environment of rising bond deals, which is, uh, as long as there's a positive yield curve, tends to make more money for the banks that they own. And uh, that's obviously been an experience in the market recently. So well done to them. Moving on, we'll talk about residential secure income, ticker R-E-S-I. What have they had to say about fundraising? So they announced this week that they were looking to raise uh, up to about £20 million, which was expected to represent about 11% of the share capital. That was an issue price of 108 spot 5p, and that represented about a 1% premium to their NAV at the end of 2021. They've got a basic pipeline uh, of up to about £39 million of shared ownership transactions. They're currently in legal negotiations, in addition to which they've got a further pipeline that's valued at £145 million. But in fact, that issue was successful uh, and they raised gross proceeds of £15 million. So um, they were a little bit short of that £20 million target. But obviously, that will allow the fund to fully finance the, the £39 million of accretive share ownerships uh, and they'll use their debt facility to, to bridge that. So would it be fair to say that these results, they don't quite have the same sort of flavour as uh, the ones we were seeing uh, back in the autumn when everything was tended to be oversubscribed quite heavily? I mean, it's not totally surprising in the current market conditions that uh, it would be slightly harder to raise money in this month, this year. Would that be a fair comment or is it just uh, these are all very specific individual cases? You might be right. And I think we'll kind of probably tell over the next week or so. I mean, we have seen a number of successful fundraisings already this year, particularly in the infrastructure space. So those infrastructure names that have kind of come over the top have been proven successful. But maybe with regard to some of the kind of more specialist property names, it is proving a little bit more difficult. But certainly experience would suggest that when markets are choppy and investors in general are slightly more distracted by the day-to-day news flow, it does become more difficult to raise money. And just remind us, as far as residential secure income is concerned, that sits in this home residential sector, UK residential sector. Uh, And just remind us what's been happening in that sector overall. I mean, there's about half a dozen companies there. And we know there have been issues for Civitas, social housing, amongst others. But this is a different kind of animal, isn't it? So what's happening in that particular micro sector, if I can put it that way? Yeah, it's a good point. So there's quite a range of ratings, actually. So you mentioned Civitas social housing. That's on a 10% discount. Triple point social housing, 11% discount. And clearly, they're not dissimilar. There's an overlap in, in terms of what they're broadly trying to do. And yet, you've got home REITs, which we discussed on a number of occasions. That's on a 17% premium at the moment. PRS REIT on a 6% premium. Uh, so these are quite highly valued, it would appear, investment companies. And, and then residential secure income, I've got them on about a 3% premium at the moment. So again, quite a wide range of ratings in this particular area. And actually, it just struck me the other day looking at these numbers. I mean, some of these trusts are really quite chunky, aren't they? I mean, they've raised uh, a lot of money, but they've been much in demand. I mean, you've got they're all several of them are more than five hundred million or so, aren't they? Something like that. Yeah, that's right. So Home REIT, which again we've, we have talked about a few times, is it hasn't come to the market or it didn't come to the market that long ago with a market cap now of over six hundred and fifty million pounds. PRS REIT not too far behind it, five hundred and seventy million. 
Uh, I mean, Civitas, despite the problems that it's had, it's it's a company with a market cap just below 600 million. So there are some substantial funds in this space. Okay, let's move on to talk about some results now. And we're going to kick off with Aberforth Smaller Companies Trust, ticker ASL. This is a trust been around for quite a long time, known as to be a kind of value investor. What have they had to say? So these were annual results for the year to 31st of December 2021. And uh, a good set of results, actually, in terms of the NAV total return, that was up 32.5%. And that compared with a rise of 21.9% for the fund's benchmark, which is the NSC Index X Investment Companies. The share price wasn't quite so good, actually. The share price total return came in at 20.3%. And that was a reflection of the fact that discount widened from about 3% to 13% in that particular year. So it really tightened in towards the end of 2020 at the start of this period. Interesting on the revenue, the revenue return per share increased by 177% and it came in at 36.76p and actually dividends declared for the year totaled 35.2p. So the total dividend was covered in this particular financial year. That was up 5.7% from the previous financial year. But as you say, Aberforth, Aberforth Partners, a very long established partnership based up in Scotland, uh, entirely focused on UK smaller companies and very, very bonded to a value orientated investment style, which obviously recently has proven to be a, a good thing. But in this period, gearing was positive. Obviously, they benefited from that value style as well. But it's a portfolio of about 80 holdings in the UK small cap. So its style is back in favour, or at least much more in favour than it was, the value style. But uh, as I said at the top of the programme, smaller companies have taken a bit of a hit recently. So this one tends to trade on a, on a discount, obviously. What's its rating look like at the moment? Has it actually uh, perked up at all on the back of that uh, strong result? So it's on about a 9% discount uh, at the moment, and that's broadly in line with its average over the previous 12 months. But it, you know, it does move around, as I mentioned, in that particular uh, set of results it has moved around quite a bit. So in the last 12 months, it's traded between a 2% discount and a 14% discount. So there is an argument here that if you are a contrarian investor and you can time discounts well, which to be honest, I'm not sure many people can do successfully consistently, um, then you can take advantage uh, of those wide discounts, uh, particularly when value comes back into favour. Okay, so we can talk about and perhaps compare a little bit, a different style. But uh, the next trust we're going to talk about uh, results is Henderson Opportunities Trust, ticker H-O-T or HOT. They've put out an annual report, but uh, not quite for the same period. Yeah, that's right. These were annual results for the year to the 31st of October. Uh, and again, a strong set of results. The NAV total return was up 58.4% in that time. That compared with a rise of 35.4% for the FTSE All Share Index. And in fact, their peer group was up just short of 44%. So they outperformed on all measures. In share price terms, they also did very well, actually up 59.5%. And that was a reflection of the fact that discount just narrowed a little bit. But it's it's an interesting portfolio, this one. It's James Henderson and Laura Fall of Janice Henderson. And obviously, they're involved in a number of investment companies, uh, Lowland being one. Uh, they're also responsible for the investment portfolio of Law Debenture. But this one is differentiated because it's effective. So it's an all cap portfolio. So they really are unconstrained in their investment approach. So if you look at where the portfolio is, is at the moment. There's a you know chunk in large cap names, very familiar large cap names. Uh, they've got some growth small cap names in there. That's about 20% of the portfolio. They've got some recovery plays. That's about 11%. They've also got an exposure to natural resources, which will be doing quite well at the moment, one assumes about 11%. They've also backed some early stage companies, 
Um, that's about 13% of the portfolio. Uh, and then the balance in small mid-cap compounders, that was about 24% at the end of this period. So it's quite a diversified portfolio. It's a real stock picker's portfolio. But certainly in this period, at least, it's performed very well. And I think one of the other distinguishing features of this particular trust is it, it employs uh, structural gearing. In other words, it always has gearing. At, at, it has some borings, which it maintains almost all the time, as far as I recall. But it also, again, is trading on quite a wide discount. Uh, how does that compare to what its past experience has been? Yeah, you're right. It's a discount at the moment is about 13%. On average, over the previous 12 months, it's probably averaged about 10%. But again, it, its discount can wing around a little bit. So we have seen it touch a, a premium rating briefly over the previous 12 months, but it's been as wide as a 16% discount. Right. So that certainly is one that uh, you know, swings and roundabouts in terms of the rating. Let's move on and talk about Invesco Select, ticker IVPU. What have they had to say? So again, these are a set of interim results, and this is for the six-month period to the end of November. Uh, and just to remind people, Invesco Select is a slightly unusual uh, investment trust company. It actually has four share classes, uh, so four different portfolios. So there's a kind of UK leg, there's a global equity income leg, there's what they call a balanced risk allocation portfolio. And then the final leg is a managed liquidity share class. And basically, investors can flip between the different legs uh, every quarter. The idea being that it's a, that's done on a tax-efficient basis. But in terms of the results, well, the UK equity portfolio outperformed. That was up 5.5% versus a rise of about 2% or so for the FTSE All Share. In share price terms, it did even better. It was up 8.6%. The global equity income portfolio, that lagged. That was up 8.5% versus 12.7% for the MSCI world. It came in about 10% or so in share price total return terms. The balanced risk allocation portfolio, that was flat in the period. And that represented an underperformance for its composite index. That was up 7.7%. But I think it's the UK equity portfolio that people will have more of an eye on, not least because I think it was last year we saw the merger between that portfolio and Invesco Income Growth. So another investment trust company kind of got merged into it. So it is the largest leg of Invesco Select. Um, I've got it about a market cap just short of 150 million at the moment. It's managed by Kieran Mallon and James Goldstone, and they've been responsible jointly for it since April last year. And in that period, as I mentioned, they did outperform. Their performance was assisted by gearing and exposure to stocks in the industrials, consumer discretionary and utilities sector. Well, given its nature, it's actually quite difficult, I guess, to determine you know, how, what to measure this against, how well it's actually doing overall, given all these different uh, share classes. But it's quite a complicated structure. And uh, does that actually get in the way of uh, its sort of wider appeal, do you think? I mean, it's not as big as some trusts in this particular sector. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole history to this particular investment trust company. I mean, it used to be, my memory is that it used to be the uh, Merrill Lynch asset allocator. And it actually was a it kind of rolled out of mercury asset management back in the day. And so I suspect there are quite a few shareholders who've been there a long time, date back to the mercury days, which is all a history lesson in, in terms of the city. So, you know, is this a structure that appeals to uh, investors is a moot point. But I think certainly by that merger with Invesco Income Growth and the UK leg did become larger. And, you know, the fact that uh, Invesco obviously lost quite a few investment companies in this area, and now this is their kind of main UK leg and uh, with James uh, Goldstone and Kieran Mallon, uh, I think it does become more important. Okay, so now let's go overseas and talk about Jupiter Emerging and Frontier Income, ticker JEFI. They've had some annual results. That's right. So they had annual results out for the year ended 
30th of September and a decent set of results actually. Their NAV total return was up 28.6%. That compared with a rise of 13.3% for the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. In share price terms, they did it even better actually. The share price total return came in at 31.5%. And also the dividends, which is an important part of the story, they totaled 4.45p for the year. That was up 1.1% year on year. And actually, their revenue return per share, that saw um, quite a significant increase. It rose from 3.71p the previous year to 4.59p. So in other words, the dividend was covered. But the relative outperformance came as a result of the fund's exposure to frontier markets and also smaller companies, uh, and also helped by being underweight China in that period. But the, the issue here, and again, we have talked about this one before, is that there is a proposal to amend the annual redemption facility. So at the moment, shareholders can basically once a year get their money back effectively at any of the less costs. And they're looking to switch that annual redemption facility to a, it will be every three years from June 2024. And I think it's limited as well to about 20% is my recollection. Um, but that's a reflection of the fact that this fund is now uh, has a market cap of £59 million. So it's become very small, really, as a function of that annual redemption facility. Okay, so this might be a good moment just to mention that this week on the Moneymakers Circle, the uh, subscription service we also run, we've done a, a profile of Polar Capital Global Financials, which we mentioned earlier as having just raised some money. And there's a very interesting Q&A I did with Nick Greenwood, the uh, manager of the MIGO Global Opportunities Trust. That is a, a fund that a trust that only invests in other investment trusts. And so he had a lot of interesting comments about some of the special situations that he's invested in. And if you happen to be interested in any of those, you'll find that uh, Q&A on our website. Let's move on and talk about some specialist results here. And we're going to talk first about 3i infrastructure, ticker 3IN. Yeah, and this was an update covering the period from the 1st of October to the end of last year. So basically the Q4 of 2021. And actually a very busy period for 3i infrastructure. Uh, a lot of investment commitments. In fact, in total, they came in about £850 million. So a busy period for new investments. In addition to that, they've made a partial sale of Oyster Catcher. That's raised €55 million Euros for them. But overall, the portfolio was reported as performing well. The fund is on track to meet its dividend target for its 2022 financial year. And that dividend is 10.45p. That would represent an increase of 6.6%. They're looking to raise their credit facility as well. And all things in, it will take their credit facilities to a billion pounds, uh, which will provide liquidity to make new investments. So they're very much on the investment tack at the moment. Okay, so uh, 3i Infrastructure is one of the bigger names in the infrastructure sector, and it doesn't have a significant yield, as good a yield as many others, partly because it trades at this uh, very uh, significant premium, does it not? Yeah, that's right. I've got it on a premium of about 24% at the moment. That's probably one of the top rated infrastructure funds in general. And as a result of that, or partially as a result of that, it's got a yield on a historic basis of about 2.9% at the moment. Okay, so we move on and talk about uh, Aquila European Renewables Income. Obviously, we mentioned the Energy Efficiency Trust that they manage earlier on, where these strange uh, goings-on with the resignation of two directors. This is ticker AERS and AERI. What have they had to report this particular trust? So again, this was a, a quarterly update. So for the three months to the end of 31st of December, and basically they saw their NAV 
up on a total return basis of 2.8% in that period. So what happened there? Well, basically, it was the impact of positive power price movements that the power price curve actually rose. And so that benefited uh, asset valuations. Also, there was a marginal positive impact from the increase in short-term CPI or inflation forecasts as well. So that was all positive. They're sitting on cash of about 102 million euros at the moment. They've also got a credit facility of 40 million euros available, but they've got some remaining construction commitments as well. But essentially, their energy production is broadly in line with budget over that three-month period. Okay, and what's the yield on that one? I'm just interested in the, how these infrastructure and renewable energy trusts are performing. Has that moved much over the last few weeks? So the yield is about 5% on a historic basis, and it's trading around around NAV. Probably, I'd be generous, about a 1% premium. Okay, let's move on and talk about BlackRock Energy and Resources Income Trust, ticker BERI. They've had some annual results. This one's been doing quite well, I think. I'm happy to say I own some shares in this one. No, it has performed well of late. Uh, These were annual results for the year to the 30th of November, in which time the NAV total return was up 34.4%. And share price terms, it performed even better. Actually, it was up 41.7% as the rating moved to a premium. So it's an interesting story, this one. And again, I think we talked about this on a number of occasions. Basically, back in March 2020, at a time when the world appeared to be ending, the funds kind of focused changed and tilted more towards energy transition. So it's now a bit of a a hybrid fund. It's uh, effectively its neutral rates of 40% mining, 30% traditional energy, and then 30% energy transition. But it's considering the managers, Tom Hall, Mark Hume, are considering the direction of travel for energy and the the portfolio will move on in time. But basically, in this particular 12-month period, traditional energy companies in the mining sector uh, contributed strongly. Well, actually, strangely enough, the energy transition segment uh, detracted a little bit. There's also a yield story here, and the revenue per share came in at four spot nine six p, and total dividends were declared of four point one p. In other words, that dividend was covered. But what they've done is that they've uh, increased their annual dividend target for their 2022 financial year by ten percent to four point four. P. And as mentioned, they are trading at a premium rating. They've managed to reissue some shares as well, raising additional capital. Yes, it's an interesting story, this, because the I mean, the shares always used to trade at a discount, I think that's fair to say. But this uh, change in uh, strategy and getting into the popular area of energy efficiency seems to have at least helped their rating a little bit. What kind of yield does this one offer? I've got it on a historic basis of 3.6%. Though, as mentioned, they're looking to increase that in their uh, next financial year. So, that may go up in time, but on a, certainly on a historic basis, 3.6%. And in a period when uh, you know commodity prices are rising and so on, that's obviously one of the beneficiaries of that particular movement in the global economy. Let's talk about ICG Enterprise. ICGT is the ticker. This is a private equity trust. And uh, what have they had to say? Yeah, this was a quarterly update for the three months to the end of October last year. Uh, in that time, they generated an NAV total return of 7.3%. And in fact, over the 12-month period to the end of October, they were up 33.2%. So, you know, private equity performing well, as we've discussed. 
The portfolio was valued at over a billion pounds at that stage, so rounded about 1.1 billion. Um, but they did have a, a significant exposure to quoted investments. That was about 14% or so. And it's worth just keeping an eye on that because it's the quoted investments in general for a number of these listed private equity funds um, that seem to be acting as a little bit of a, a dampener at the moment. So as discussed, growth companies seem to be uh, or have certainly sold off over the last few months. And a number of these listed private equity companies do have exposure to a greater or lesser extent. But there's a lot of investment activity going on. Certainly in this period, realizations totaled £90 million versus investments, new investments of £75 million. But again, in terms of their dividend, they're targeting a total dividend for their full financial year of at least 27p. And that would represent a 12.5% increase year on year. And we've talked several times here about private equity trusts and why they continue to trade at, uh, in some cases at least, uh, quite significant discounts. We talked about the reasons for that, but uh, that's a pretty impressive return for uh, over the course of a year, would you not say? How does that compare with some of the others that we've talked about a lot? Look, it's been a very strong period for private equity in general, and obviously we're You've always got to be a little bit careful because we're looking, uh, not always comparing apples with apples. Uh, there's a little bit of delay in terms of getting NAVs. But if you look over the longer term, well, uh, you know, reasonable period, three-year period, if you look at that private equity fund of funds peer group, in which uh, certainly we put ICG Enterprise, I've got them up 60% in NAV total return terms over that three-year period. That is very comparable to Pantheon up 62%, BMO private equity, I've got them up 69%. Um, but ahead of them would be Standard Life Private Equity. I've got them up 74% and actually Harbourvest up 95% over that period. But you've got to be a little bit careful because some of those NAVs will be based on estimates. But in general, it has been a strong period for, for listed private equity funds. OK, well, now we can move on and talk about Riverstone Energy, ticker RSE, which is obviously an energy trust and has traded on a big discount for a long time, partly because of the... Uh, as I recall, the way it issued shares at a discount some years ago didn't go down well in the city or with investors, but they're clawing their way back and they've actually been performing quite well, I think. Yeah, that's right. And uh, this was a quarterly portfolio update again to the end of December last year. But, uh, you know, it's another case of an investment company trying to move its story on. So the idea is now that it's focused on global decarbonisation and energy transition. Um, so there's kind of an echo there of what the BlackRock Energy Resource Fund is also trying to do. In the case of Riverstone, though, it's it's quite a different portfolio. There are 15 active investments, of which five account for about 72%. So it's a very concentrated focus portfolio. And uh, there are a number of legacy positions there as well. But certainly going forward, the focus is on kind of five investment verticals, which all kind of play to this global decarbonisation theme. But it's also worth noting as well, you know, you made the point about the, the discount. I've got them on about a 36% discount on my screen at the moment. But in this quarter alone, they bought back over 5 million shares at a price just short of uh, £5 on average. So they are looking to address the issue of their discount. Which is roughly what at the moment? Yeah, I've got it on about a 36% discount at the moment. Right. So that's uh, that is still a significant discount indeed. We're going to move on and talk about some property trusts now, and they've been churning out some updates, most of them about Q4, and we can perhaps uh, look at the general picture shortly. But let's kick off with the alternative income REIT, ticker AIRE. They've had a, a Q4 update. That's right. And in that time, their NAV was up 2.9%. It's not one of the larger property companies, this one, but 
it was had a fair value, the property portfolio of £108 million at the end of December across its 18 properties. But it made the point that 93% of its portfolio leases are linked to inflation and actually they expected to receive 100% rent collection for that current quarter. In terms of the dividend, they've declared a quarterly dividend of 1.3p. That was in line with the third quarter. And the fund remains on track to deliver a target annual dividend of 5.5p per share with full cover expected by September this year. That's one. Let's move on to talk about Impact Healthcare REIT, ticker IHR. Yep, and they announced a Corsica update again for exactly the same period. They generated an NAV total return of 2% in the period. Obviously, this is a specialist property play, and their property portfolio was valued at uh, £459 million at the end of the year. They made the point that there have been a number of rent reviews, 13 to be precise, uh, and they've been completed at an average uplift of 4% per annum, uh, and that's in line with the rental increase cap. But again, they made the point that 100% of rental income is linked to inflation and they expect to maintain their rent collection at 100%. But they declared a dividend of 1.6025p in relation to that period. And uh, that gives them 6.41p per share for the year to the end of 31st of December 2021. And that's all being covered by EPRA and adjusted earnings. Now, their target dividend for the year to the end of 2022, that's up 2% year-on-year to 6 spot 54 p Yeah, it's worth just mentioning a point we mentioned before, which is that you do have to look quite closely at the actual terms on which these uh, rent reviews and uh, inflation linkage is concerned. It's quite common, I think, to have a cap of around 4%. So if inflation does carry on at the current levels of 6 7%, which I think not many people actually expect, or at least hope it won't, but it does mean that you're not getting full inflation protection from uh, these contracts. So I wonder if, if there is a kind of regime change in terms of the level of inflation, we might see some of these specialist property companies trying to change their, their rental agreements. Yeah, no, I think that's a very reasonable point. A- again, the devil's in the detail and, and, and cap and collars are not uncommon. Standard Life Investments Property Income, ticker SLI. That's the next one to look at, which has also had a, a Q4 update. Yep, again, exactly the same period. This particular fund probably did a little bit better than some of the others, actually. It was an NAV total return of 9.5%. So the portfolio valuation was up uh, just short of 7% on a like-for-like basis. There's been a bit of portfolio activity in terms of uh, new investments. And actually, the managers made it clear they're looking to increase the loan-to-value ratio. In other words, they're going to make new investments uh, against gearing um, is they're a little bit under their target range at the moment. But during that three-month period to the end of 31st of December, they received uh, payment of all arrears from, from a tenant. They had a particular issue in terms of a rent collection. That's all been sorted out now after some legal action was taken. And in fact, the collection rates for the final quarter of last year, um, they're currently coming in over 97%, with a further 2% expected shortly. The dividend for the quarter has increased by 12% to 1p per share, And in fact, that dividend cover came in at 133% or 102% excluding some one-offs. And then finally, we're going to look at uh, UK Commercial Property REIT, ticker UKCM. They've had a similar Q4 update. That's right. And again, a decent quarter for this particular company. NAV total return of 8.7% a 7.6% increase in like-for-like property valuation. I mean, it's a a big property portfolio, this one. It was valued at 1.5 billion at the end of the year, of which about 63% was in industrials. Uh, The fund is fully invested. In fact, they had some cash at the start of the quarter. That's now been deployed. And so they made three acquisitions 
worth over 150 million in that three month period. They've also increased their, their gearing level up a little bit to about 13.5%. And certainly, historically, this has been one of the kind of more conservatively managed balance sheets. It's always had a lower level of gearing than some of its counterparts. But in terms of the rent collection, that stood about 96% for that three month period. And in fact, their EPRA earnings per share saw a 52% increase to 0.9p. So looking over this uh, commercial property sector as a whole, and obviously in terms of one or two specialists we've talked about as well, like Impact Healthcare, it does seem as if this particular commercial property sector has recovered from the the blows that it took during the pandemic in terms of getting its rents rolled back uh, working again. And, you know, it's almost back to business as normal. But what can one say about the way that the sector has traded? In other words, you know, there's still a lot of big discounts out there, perhaps wider than they were before the pandemic in one or two cases. So what do you think? Do you think uh, investors are not yet quite ready to say that, uh, you know, we've forgotten about the pandemic and we're now back to where we used to be? Yeah, no, it's a good point. I mean, you're absolutely right. There has been a significant re-rating of commercial property in general. In fact, I think it was one of the best performing subsectors in, in 2021. And yet we still see quite significant discounts. So UK commercial property, we just mentioned on a 16% discount, standard life investments property on a 17% discount. So clearly, there is a little bit of hesitation or perhaps people are not necessarily increasing their allocations to commercial property at the moment. In contrast, when you look at some of the, those more specialist property names, so we talked about Impact Healthcare, that's on about a 5% premium to its NAV at the moment. And that, uh, I think we talked about sheds and beds before, those more specialist property, be it logistic warehouses or you know specialist care home type providers, they tend to trade better than the wider market. So there is economic sensitivity in a lot of the UK commercial property portfolios, uh, and particularly where there's exposure to retail. So the direction of travel for many of these names has been to move away from from retail. And those that tend to be highly rated or more highly rated are the ones that have lower exposure to retail as as a rule of thumb. But it'd be interesting to see this year as economic conditions pick up and perhaps people look at retail again, whether we do see those ratings move in. Because I'm just looking at, uh, you know, Santa Life Investments, Property Income and UK Commercial Property REIT, the NAV is both around 100p, which is uh, suggests that if you're investing in them, you're basically doing so on a yield basis. What kind of yields are we, are we getting on those kind of trusts, given their discounts? So Standard Life Investments, Property Income, I've got that on about a 4.3% yield on a historic basis. UK Commercial Property is uh, lower, so I've got it on about 3%. We talked about Alternative Income REIT. That comes in at 7%, although it's worth noting that's a much smaller vehicle. It's only got a market cap of about 60 million or so. Uh, whereas Impact Healthcare, again, on a historic basis, 5.5%. Right. So you can understand why people are looking more towards the specialist property trust because you get a, on the whole, getting a higher yield and uh, possibly some greater capital growth as well, for the moment at least. Okay, so that, uh, I think, brings us to the end of this particular podcast. It's been a relatively quiet week, a lot going on in the markets, as we've said. What do you think um, about the prospects of the rest of this year, Simon? How's it going to go? Is it going to be a good year, a bad year? What, what do you think? Would you like to put your finger in the wind and take a stab at a guess how we're going to perform this year? What did you say in your annual review? What was your outlook in your annual review that came out? Well, you, well, you were kind enough to mention I got all my predictions for 2021 right, so I suspect I'll get them all wrong for 2022. But look, it's been a bit of a bumpy start. Uh, we have seen a rotation in markets, though we saw not dissimilar thing at the start of 2021. Value came back into favour initially, and that uh, faded as we went through the year. Clearly, there's a huge amount of focus on inflation at the moment, and I think the markets can be very, very sensitive to that. That's uh, something that we're probably going to be talking about every week for the rest of the year. 
But I mean, the hope is that clearly as 2022 progresses, that economies in general will pick up, not just in the UK, clearly, but around the world. And that will result in higher earnings coming through. But I think, as we said at the start of the programme, that there are going to be some winners and there are going to be some losers. So although we tend to kind of mass companies together, so we talk about the FANGs uh, as a group, then actually even within that, you're going to see some that will do very, very well and some that will disappoint uh, and the market will react accordingly. So overall, I'm pretty positive on the outlook for 2022, but it's uh, invariably it won't be straightforward. <laughs> it certainly won't be straightforward. And I think uh, we mentioned before, you were perhaps foolish enough to make a prediction about Boris Johnson, whether he's going to survive or not. How's that one going? <laughs> well, uh, yes, I did make a prediction about Boris Johnson. We always have, we put a little political prediction in there. And I think when I wrote my report, uh, I, think I wrote it at the back end of last year, I said Boris would survive 2022. I'm feeling slightly less confident about that right now. But uh, yeah, politics is uh, perhaps an even more difficult game than, than investing. It certainly is. And it's certainly uh, not quite as uh, rational as investing. I think you could safely say strange things happen. Very good. Thank you so much, Simon. And we'll look forward to talking again next week. Thank you. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.